Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. And we're going to continue along the lines, just a couple of more Sundays on this. We've been talking about the principle in the, that the kingdom of God operates under of sowing and reaping. We laid a foundation for this for a number of weeks. We talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world that you and I grew up in and live in primarily in terms of our, the natural life that we're around is an upside-down kingdom because it's take, Satan, who is the god of this world, has taken the principles of the kingdom of God and perverted them. And the primary way he's perverted them is God's kingdom is based on God, on who he is, on our focus on him. And as long as our focus is on him and as long as our, we're, we're so aware of him that we're not conscious of ourselves, there's an open door for God to bless us and take care of us. That's why it was called paradise. But Satan comes in, came in to destroy it. And he couldn't destroy it, but all he could do is pervert it. And the way he did it is he got them to think about themselves. And the more they began to think about themselves, the more they began to lose their awareness of who God was. And as they began to look at themselves, and the lie he told them he, and that they bought was that, 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 that if you look out for yourself, you can, nobody can look out for you better than you can. And we saw in the kingdom of God, God took care of everything they needed. The truth is nobody can take care of you the way God can take care of you. Well, the real test is how good a job are you doing? Just look at your life. What kind of job are you doing on your own? Imagine what God could do if He had complete control of your life. And that's what He had in those. But the lie that they bought was that they could do a better job than God did. And as a result, it's called the fall. They fell from the presence of God. And the first thing that comes in is fear, then guilt and shame, and they hid themselves. And man's been hiding themselves from God ever since. Now what's happened is we get saved, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of, of His beloved Son, In the spirit, our spirit has been, and yet we still live by the principles, those perverted principles of the world. And as a result is although we're in the kingdom of God, we have the potential to walk in paradise on this earth, we're walking in the, in the, in the fruit of the world because we're still walking under the principles of the world. And then we came down to this principle of sowing and reaping. We saw that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world that we were raised in is based on a principle of buying and selling. Whether it's money or not, it's an exchange. I want the best deal. I came home. We had a, we had a, a leader's meeting yesterday. We had a, a meeting with the missions trip, and then we had a, a baptism service, which we had over 20 people. It was a wonderful service, over 20 people baptized, glorious stories about how God's working in people's lives. And then I came home, and, 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 and my wife was talking about some things that she'd gotten, you know, what a great deal she got somewhere. And it's like, I'm thinking, yeah, see? And there's nothing wrong with getting a great deal. The, the problem is, is, is that every, we think we can do that with God. And so the principle of this world is, that, is an exchange whereby I want to give you as li- little as I have to to get as much from you as I can. And the motive for that is what's best for me, taking care of me again. Again, ladies... Go to your sales, take your coupons, get the best deal you can. The problem is when we bring it into the things of God, we operate by that same thinking. And what we've been discovering is God's kingdom operates, the true principle is sowing and reaping. And the motive in sowing is I'm giving what I have on your benefit what's best for you. And as I do that, the kingdom of God's principle is God will make sure that what I need is multiplied back unto me. John chapter 12, Jesus explains this principle. And we've been talking, we started last week in this study, looking at the principle of the seed, the seed principle, because in it is all we need to know in terms of how this works. John chapter 12, Jesus said in verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, that's a seed, falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So the principle is this. It all starts with a seed. In that seed is the potential for everything, that, uh, for, an, for a harvest. So if it's wheat, let's say it's a seed for wheat, a grain of, seed, of wheat. Jesus is, tell, Jesus is telling us. This isn't some... TV evangelist, this is Jesus saying, if you keep that seed by itself, if you don't let go of it, it remains by itself, alone. And here's the problem. 
We're so conscious of what we have and what we need and the difference between the two. And what we began to learn last week is the kingdom of God looks at the heart. We're looking at the harvest that we need. But, you know, I'm sure if I sat down with each of you, you could give me a list of the things you need right now. And, 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 And the fact that you need it and don't have it means it's more than you have the ability to obtain on your own. And so what we're, the, the lie we get caught in is we've got to keep looking at our need and the more we keep looking at our need and what we have, the more frustrated we get because we don't have enough to meet that need. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the harvest that we need. And it's fine to look at the harvest in terms of planning, in terms of having hope, but if all you ever do is look at the harvest that's not there yet, by the way, you'll never get it because the harvest doesn't start with the harvest it starts with the seed. And so Satan's device is to keep getting you to look at what you don't have and telling you that what you do have is not enough to meet what you don't have and therefore you're left in this hopeless situation. And that's where he wants you because if you're hopeless, you'll just stay where you are and you're just a sitting duck for him at that point. But what does Jesus teach us? He teaches us to take what, look at what we do have and to see it as a seed. But he says, unless that seed, you let go of that seed, and you sow it in the ground, it remains by itself alone. And then when it goes in the ground, something else has to happen. It has to die to what it was. Because if it just remains a seed, all the potential that's in that, all the light, all the DNA, everything that's needed for a harvest of corn or wheat is in that seed but it will never become the harvest if it stays a seed. So it starts with recognizing the seed, and that's what we talked about last time. Then the next thing is what you've got to do with the seed. You've got to sow it or plant it. What we're going to do today is we're going to finish up talking about the seeds so that we can recognize the seeds that are in our life because we're so trained to look at the need, we don't recognize the seed. Because we're looking for an answer now. And a farmer understands that you're not going to get a crop now. You've got to plant the seed now to get the crop then. All right. So that's what Jesus is teaching us. So we were talking last time about the different seeds, about what's our seeds in our life. Let's go to Matthew 7, because that was another principle we looked at. Now, in this section, starting in verse 7, we're not going to read that, but he talks about receiving from God. Ask and you'll receive. Ask and will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And he talks about a father, how a father won't trick you if you ask him for a good father, won't trick you if you ask him for a loaf of bread. He's not going to give you a stone. If you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a poisonous snake. He's not going to play games with you. He's going to give you what you ask for as long as it's good for you. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give what's good? So he's talking about receiving things from God. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, therefore, which means it's tied to what we just talked about, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, the kingdom of God operates on this principle. So notice the word whatever. It's not just money. It's whatever. It's the law. We're going to talk about that next time. It's a law. It's a principle. It works whether you intend it to work or not, and it will either work for you or against you because it is a principle. Just like gravity either works for you or against you because it's a principle. It works. It's a principle of nature. So, what we're looking at is it's not just money. It's whatever. And and so we began to look at things last time that it could possibly be. Let's go to Luke chapter 6 now. Basically, it's Luke's version of the same conversation. And we'll look in verse 27. But I say to you who hear... 
Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And we've talked about that before. This is how God operates. To him who strikes you on one cheek, we talked about that in terms of the principles. The kingdom of God operates on these principles. The kingdom of the world operates on the principles if somebody does something to you, you do it back to them. In other words, the, the world operates on the principles of, of re- reacting to people. What they do to you, you do back to them. And when we talk, began to talk about this, we talked about the order. Under the world's principles, which is a perversion, you're, they act first and then you react to them. Under the kingdom of God, we act first. In other words, how you want people to treat you, you take the initiative and you treat them that way first. That's the seed. So the world operates on the principle of you take the harvest and then you worry about the seed. So you react to people. Notice when you're reacting, you're not in control. We talked about that. When all you do is react to what people do to you, guess who's leading your life? Satan. And yet Romans 8 says, because we're children of God, we're to be led by the Spirit, not by the devil. Remember, he's a deceiver. He's a trickster. He, Adam and Eve didn't just decide, hey, you know, we don't like God. Let's go try something else. They were, she was deceived. Now, he wasn't deceived. He just chose to follow his wife in that. But the point is, they didn't do it because they didn't love God. They didn't do it because they hated God. They didn't do it because they were angry at God. They listened to a lie. And you can be a good, well-intentioned Christian that loves God and loves Jesus and still end up deceived because you've listened to a lie. And remember, we've been trained in this. This is the way we're raised. We're trained to think this way. Whatever somebody does to you, you do it back to them. So in, Luke, in Luke's account here, which we again, we've talked about before in Matthew's version of this, what he's saying is don't, don't do back to people what they've done to you because God doesn't do that. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God doesn't talk about you the way you've talked about Him at times? Aren't you glad God doesn't treat you the way you treat Him? What if God only spent as much time working in your life as you spend working for Him? What if God only loves you to the degree you love Him? What if God waits to see what you do for Him first before He does anything for you? And yet, that's how some of us think of God. That, well, the reason this is happening, I haven't done enough. All right, let's move on. So in the kingdom of God... We act first. We decide what it is we want, and then we take action. And if you're going to do it first, you've got to do it by faith because you don't see the results yet. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Just as the farmer wants that harvest of wheat, and so by faith in the process, he has to take that grain, which he has in his hands. He doesn't have the harvest. He has the grain. And he has enough confidence that this is going to work that he lets go of that seed and sows it in the ground where he can't see it anymore. And we looked in Mark chapter 4 and watched that process. Let it go in the ground because he knows if he does that that he's going to have a carpet. Actually, what he knows is if he doesn't do that, all he's going to have is the grain of wheat. So he acts first in order to get the harvest. Because in the principle of the kingdom of God, God acts first. We act first, and then we receive the harvest. But in the world's thinking, you don't trust anything until you see it. So what you see is how people have treated you, and then that's how you treat them back. And notice that's based on what, how it affects me. It's selfish. It's self-centered. All right. So that's the context he's talking about here. Bless those who curse you, verse 28. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes from you away from your cloak, then, and don't withhold your tunic either. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who takes from you goods, do not ask them back. Now, you can make a law out of this. You know, does that mean I can't ever stand up for myself? Does that mean, you know, that, if, that I've got to just be a doormat and let people walk over me? No, it doesn't mean that. What he's talking about is this principle 
of who's taking care of you, whether you're going to defend yourself, protect yourself, and assert yourself. He's talking about the root problem in all of our lives, which is the, what you see when you look in a mirror. It's the old Snoopy expression. We've met the enemy, and it's us. <laughs> the root problem you have is you, is, your, is the self it's my self-image. It's my self-concern. It's my self. It's everything about you. It's asserting you, protecting you, providing for you. Because when you do that, you become the god of your own kingdom. Because remember, there's two kingdoms. In God's kingdom, He's everything. But because He's everything, we have everything. He's first, and because He's first, and because of His nature, everything He has is ours. I don't see any evidence that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis that they were lacking anything or complaining of anything. And notice we've talked about, it says at the end of chapter 2, and they were both naked and were not ashamed. They weren't even aware of themselves to know that they didn't have clothes on. That's how lost in God they were and how unaware of themselves they were. Now in modern psychology, they would say they had a problem. So you know, the thinking of the world is you've got to develop your self-confidence. You've got to become your self-aware. You've got to find out who you are. Remember years ago, there was a famous recording artist that left her husband because she wanted to go out and find out who she was. And she's sharing this on TV, which is why you've got to be careful what you watch, Christian TV. And they were applauding her in this endeavor. When I heard about it, I said, well, she needs to get saved. Because my Bible, at least a reader Bible, because my Bible tells me that when I came to Christ, I lost who I was, but I didn't lose because I became who He is. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. It's no longer the, about the great me. I, me, my, mine. but it's now Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this is how God acts. God's not operating based on what's best for him. He's operating on what's best for you. He's putting you first. But you can't put someone else first until you're willing to let go of you and trust you to Him. Because in the Scripture in John chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about that, He goes on and talks about His life. He's not talking about His money. He's not talking about his, his, you know, his, his, his car or His house or things like that. He's talking about sowing His life. And, and, and we want to hold on to things. We want not just things, we want to hold on to our own life, to what, you know, being in control. I want to have, my, I want things done my way. And this is the biggest issue you have with God. He wants to do it His way, and you want to do it your way. I guess who wins? And if He wins, you win. Because understand this there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God where He's king and everything's based on Him. And see, see, I used to struggle with that because I'm going to lose everything. But now you gain everything. But then there's this other kingdom where the illusion is, yeah, but I'm king over here. You're king of nothing. In this kingdom, Satan is the god of this kingdom. So if you think you're in control, guess which kingdom you're operating in? I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven because I'm talking to people that are going to heaven. It's not about where you're going to end up. It's what kingdom are you operating in here? So when we're trying to assert ourselves, protect ourselves, provide... And again, there's nothing wrong with providing for yourself. It's the, it's the, it's the self part of it. It's that I've got to do it. I'm responsible. I'm in charge. I, 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 me, me, me. Because the interesting thing is, you look at Abraham, the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. God gave that son to him, Isaac. In fact, Abraham tried to do it himself. 
And God says, no, no. I'm going to just give this child to you, and all you've got to do is believe me that I'm going to do it. So he made it very clear that not only was he giving this son to him, but that God made a further promise that through this son Isaac, you will be the father of many nations. Talked about on Wednesday night. From God's side, he said in Genesis 17, as for me, I've already made you a father of many nations. And now in Genesis 22, after this boy's grown up, the father loves him. He's the joy of his life. He's the, he's the, he's the gift of God to him. And he's the future of the entire nation. And in some ways, the entire world is this son. He's so proud of the son. He loves the son so much. And what does God say to him? Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the place I'll show you and offer him as a sacrifice to me. God's hard. Wow. Was God being mean there? Was God punishing Abraham? No, 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 no. God understood Abraham's heart and knew that even things God has given us, especially things God has given us, especially things God has given us that have a future and a purpose beyond ourselves that God has entrusted to us, can become so dear to us that they become more dear to us than he does. And so God said to Abraham, see, Abraham was starting to operate over here. He's my son. He's my boy. And God said to Abraham, I want you to bring him over here. And I want you to offer him to me. To the point of Abraham raising a knife and ready to bring it down. And God says to him, speaks through an angel and says, stop, don't do it. Now I know that you reverence me. And the Bible calls that in that chapter worship. See, we think worship is singing to God. That's a method of doing it. That's a means of expressing worship. But if you think worship is singing, you're going to miss it. It is a heart towards God where He is first above everything. There, was, I, there may have been singing go on there, but the Bible doesn't record any singing. Abraham says, I'm going to, the lad and I are going to go and worship God and return. God says, now I know that you fear me in the sense of reverence me. Now I know where I stand in your heart. Then did God take the boy away from him? No. He gave him back to him. Not only that, Abraham was the richest man on the earth at that time in that area. God didn't take his possessions away from him as long as God knew he was first. And Abraham was blessed. He had a relationship with God. God called him his friend. So the point here is this. Our our humanness, our flesh, our fallen flesh wants to take care of ourselves, provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, assert ourselves, know ourselves, have ourselves known. You know, all the stuff, it's all around self. And self separates us from fully knowing God. Because itself puts me on a throne to a place that only belongs to him. And it's not that God's being mean and demanding something. It's the very nature. We can't know him if we're on our throne. Not fully. And so, so sowing involves what he's talking about here in this passage. Is he's taught, this is the self. When I started going into this by saying, you have to be legalistic and you have to just be a doormat. It's just that are you asserting yourself? Are you promoting yourself? Is this about you? Because every time I teach this, I got somebody comes to me, well, pastor, is it okay for me to do this? Well, the question is, what's your motive inside? What's your motive inside? Because there have been times, the times the Bible says if you're in a, in a battle with a Christian, a dispute with a Christian, it's better off if you lose the battle. And we've done, I've done that here. We were in, when I took over, we were involved in, in an issue with another Christian institution over something that we've really had a right to. And we tried to, I tried to resolve it with them. And the scriptures say that it was, it was, we would have had to go to court. And I determined I'm not going to court with, with another Christian organization. Because the Bible says, what kind of testimony is that? If you can't work it out among yourselves, 
then, then you failed as a Christian. You're better off, he said, the word says, of releasing it. And that's what we did. We took the rights that we had and sewed it into that other organization. And I did this in the lawyer's offices in front of these non-Christian lawyers. I said, I'm, you won't understand this, but what we're going to do is we're going to take what we have a right to and sew it into that organization. I'm not going to take them to court. I'm not going to defend ourselves at the expense of another Christian organization. And that's what the Word of God says to do. So it's a matter of, you know, we have rights, they have rights. We're all one. We're all one. Well, I'm all over the place this morning. We're just kind of hitting... It'll be one of those mornings where the Spirit of God's doing something with people. All right. Let's see. We'll go down to... um, Verse 31, And just as you want men to do to you, you do also to them likewise. But if you love only those who love you, what credit is to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, the world treats people on the basis of how they're treated. But we're not supposed to act that way. If you then do good to those who do good... Oh yeah, all right, verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners lend to, to sinners to receive back as much. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping nothing in return. Your reward will be great. So there will be a reward, but it won't be from them. There will be a reward, but it won't be from them. And you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, you will act like your father. For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will free forgive. We're talking about seeds this morning. Notice what these are seeds of. Mercy is a seed. If you sow mercy, mercy will be reaped back unto you. If you sow judgment, judgment will be reaped back to you. If you show condemnation to others, Condemnation will be reaped back to you. If you show forgiveness, forgiveness will be reaped back to you. You need to see seed in terms of what is it you have. What can you give in that situation? Learn to think that way in every situation. What is it I have to do? That's what I did in that situation with the dispute. All right, God, it's not getting resolved. I've tried to resolve it with them. And actually, as I listened to them, I came to believe that their cause was more important than our cause. And I began to look at it from their perspective. And they were good people, really loved the Lord, trying to do something for God. And I began to hear what they had to say. And say, here's what I want to do. I want to invest in your ministry. So I'm going to take our rights and sow them into you. And as a result, they blessed us back. And I believe that pleases God. So we need to look at what do I have? In the middle of a dispute, what do I have that I can give? Because again, the seed principle is based on what you have, not on what you don't have. It's not looking at the harvest. It's what seed do you have? And what we're discovering here is the Bible teaches us that everything you have is some kind of seed. So we looked last time at time as a seed. Some of you are out of work. That means you have time, extra time. Sow it into the kingdom of God. Do something with it. Don't just sit there and, and say, well, I don't have a job. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Yeah, do what you need to do, but sow into the kingdom of God. Sow your time. Your talents, your abilities. Let's look at that. First Peter chapter 4. No, excuse me, Romans chapter 12. Let's go there first. Here he's talking about gifts that God's given you. 
And I don't mean the car in your driveway. I mean abilities that God has put in you. Having gifts, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace that God has given to us. Grace is not just, well, it is God's unmerited favor, but it's not just that, you know, God loves you and feels warm towards you. It also includes God's favor to have deposited things in you. Gifts, abilities, talents. Some talents and abilities are more obvious than others. So if you have a beautiful singing voice, if you have, if you have the ability to write music or play instruments well, that's an obvious talent and ability. So it's easy if you don't have those kinds of talents and abilities to say, well, I don't have anything. You have an ability to do something. You're breathing. Because <laughs> one of the biggest ministries the Bible talks about is the ministry of helps. I asked God one time years ago, I said, all right, Lord, tell me, what is, what is, what is it helps mean? He said, it's anything that helps. God's so simple. We try to build in this big company. It's anything that helps. There are things around here we need help with. And you may not have a talent to write music or, or to build things, but you could simply lift things or carry things or do things or push a broom. That doesn't take a lot of skill. There are things you can do that you have abilities to do. You have two hands. You can use them. There's gifts and abilities that we have. Learn to see those. Don't look at, well, I don't have this and I don't have this. What do you have? What do you have that you can sow? Okay. So he's talking here about gifts that you can use. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. Now here he's talking about in operations in a church. If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith or ministry. That means serving. Let us use it in our ministering or serving. That means helps. He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, that's money. He who leads with diligence. In other words, there are gifts and talents and abilities. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 10, as each of you has received a gift, minister to one another, serve one another with it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. No, whatever God's given you, you're a steward over that. We're not going to take the time today to go into the parable of the talents, but you're all familiar with that. Where a ruler, a ruler took, or took talents, in that case it was money, and put it into people's hands and said, he gave differently according to each one's ability. And then he came back and asked for an accounting of what did you do with the talent that I gave you. Well, the word talent there refers to money, but you could also use it for the things we're talking about now, your gifts and ability, that you're a steward over those. Because they didn't come from you. See, we've got to recognize that. It's one of the things God had to train me in, that the gifts that God had given me, the gift, to, the grace to teach, to take things down, even as a as a child, I had, some, I had this ability to look at complicated things, break them down, and express them in simple terms. And I remember even as a lawyer, one of my clients saying to me, were you a teacher before you did I said, why? She said, because you teach as you talk to your, to your clients. Because that's the gift that God put in me. Now, I can't look at that gift and say, wow. Wow, look at the gift I got. As if I created it. It's something God has entrusted to me for the benefit of you. So I've had people, you know, you know you're, you're a good teacher, and I, I'll say thank you. But in my mind, I say, God, I remind myself, remember, that the ability you've given me is a talent you gave to me as a steward. It's not mine. I don't own it. I'm entrusted with it to, to, listen, to use it for your purposes and your ways. And I can't tell you, I don't have time this morning to take you through the process he took me to to train me of to use it when he says to use it and not use it when he says not to use it. Reminds me that it's his, it's not mine. So whatever you have, you're a steward of it. You don't own it. You didn't create it. God created it. He entrusted it to you. And because of that, I will give an account of how I did it. 
that I use? Was I faithful with what he entrusted to me? And again, we tend to look at it as well, teaching, singing, you know, all those stuff. But it's, it's many things beyond that. Yeah. The ability just to encourage people. We read that. That doesn't require you to stand in the pulpit. Sometimes the most meaningful thing that happens to someone on a Sunday morning is you may come up to them and put your hand on their shoulder and say, it's so good to see you this morning. You have no idea what their day was like before then. Say, well, what's that? That's a seed you've just sown. You just encourage somebody. You've connected with somebody. Be sensitive when you walk in here to not just find your seat and make sure nobody's sitting in it. But to be open how God might use you between that front door and your seat. Somebody around you, just, you know, you may just feel something in you to just, you know, just go say hello to them. Wow, that's nothing. But it is. It is. It's God saying, I want to use you today. Take what you have. Just that time, that encouragement, that smile. Training exercise. On the count of three, I want you to do something, and I, I know you all can do it. Okay, I'm going to ask you to take this side of your mouth and move it up towards your ear and this side. It's called smiling. Okay, Some of you are cheating already. You're starting. You ready? I want to see if everybody can do this. One, two, three, smile. Ah, some of you are struggling. That's, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but I know you can do it. Just imagine your favorite team winning the championship. All right? You can take what you just did and give it to somebody. Give it to somebody. Sow it. Okay, we've got to move on. All right. Talents and abilities. Obviously, you can do things for other people. Forgiveness, we've already looked at that. Other scriptures, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Mark eleven twenty five 25. says, if you don't forgive others, God can't forgive you. Mercy, we've looked at mercy. James 2, let's go there quickly. James 2, I want to show you the opposite of this. Because this is a principle that works one way or the other. James chapter 2, verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to he who has shown no mercy. If you want God to be merciful to you, then you need to show mercy to others first. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now let's see how this gets applied. Let's bring it down to some examples. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. Story some of you are familiar with, some of you may not be. 1 Kings chapter 17. This is a story of Elisha, Elijah, who was a prophet at a time when Israel was ruled by King Ahab, who was evil. But his wife was even more evil, Jezebel, and he just basically did what she told him to do. God used this prophet to prepare the people and, and, to, and to bring repentance to the people, or tried to. And one of it is God has Elijah prepare to, to call a drought. Verse 1, And the Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, that's the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these years except at my word. In other words, he goes to the king and said, All right, king, I'm going to show you that God's God. It will not rain again until I say so. It will not rain again until I say so. Now, the fact that it didn't rain created a famine because the crops couldn't grow because they needed, the, they needed water. And so it says that he sent him to the, book, the brook, the stream Cherith, which flows into the Jordan so that the prophet could be taken care of. And while he was at that brook, that he could drink water out of the brook and ravens brought him food. God can take care of you. He knows where you are, 
and he knows how to take care of you. This prophet is obeying God, and in the process of obeying him, he now finds himself in a land that's in, in, that's in a famine. But God's going to take care of his prophet. But the prophet had to do what God said to do. He says, you go to where I tell you to go. This is why it's important for you to be where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. And so he went to the place where God told him to be, which made no sense. Go down by the brook. Where's the food going to come from? There's no McDonald's there. There's no Burger King, no stop and shop. But he did what God told him to do, and God used ravens to come bring him the food. And then what happens is the brook dries up. What God was using to provide for you suddenly dries up. You need to learn this, and I learned this early on. By God's grace, I learned this early on. God is my source. Now, when I discovered that, when I realized that, I was working in a large law firm making more money than we could spend. And it's easy to believe God's your, your source when all the money's rolling in. But I disciplined myself in that. And I, I, I trained myself by, by when I needed a raise or wanted a raise. Instead of going to them, I asked God for the raise. And I shared that testimony a few months ago of how God provided exactly what I asked for. And I've had that happen three different times. And so I learned, because it was important for me to learn that, because there came a point a few, weeks, a few, month, few years later where God told me to leave where we were and to take my family and to move to the Brook Cherith, <laughs> which was in Oklahoma. I didn't even know where that was. To me, that was like being out into the wilderness. Now, if you're from that area, you love it, that's fine. But when you're used to living by the water and you're used to having, you know, hills and roads that don't just go straight, it, to me, was, my goodness, where have you put me? What have I done wrong? But it's where God had us going. And God provided for us there. And so what's happening to, to, to this prophet is God's providing for him, but the means that God was using dried up. But see, he know, knew God was his source, not the brook. So he goes to God. Now look what happens. Look what God tells him to do. Verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise from here and go to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath is in another country. It's in a country of Phoenicia, basically, where, where they did have no covenant with God. They weren't Jews. They were outside the covenant of Abraham. And God tells him to go basically to a foreign land. And then look what he tells him to do. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now God used ravens to begin with, and now he's going to use a widow. Not just a widow. See, we would think if God's going to provide for us, He's going to send us to work for General Motors as a senior executive vice president. I mean, because we look at the circumstances and the title, and we look at that as security. But security is being where God puts you. So here's his answer. God speaks to him. The brook's dried up. Oh, God, thank you. I'm hearing from you now again. Oh, God. Where are you going to send me? I'm going to send you out of the country. And I'm sending you to a widow who has nothing. What's that going to do? But see, if God's your source, God said, I will use the widow to bless you. I will use the widow to provide for you. God's the source, and He wants to use people to be the source of meeting other people's needs. See, God doesn't drop things down out of heaven usually and say, well, God need money. There's no money in heaven. So it isn't dropping out of heaven. God will draw it out of somewhere where it is here. And you are either the beneficiary of that in a transaction or God this may is what we have to learn to think differently. We think in terms of our need, the kingdom of God operates in terms of the seed. Okay. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. 
And he came to the gate of the city, and indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. Oh, here's my answer. The widow is gathering sticks. And he goes to her, and he called her and said, Please bring me a little cup of water that I may drink. And as she was going to get the water, which she could get, he called and said, And while you're doing that, bring me some bread in your hand. <laughs> now this widow, she, she, she's not a, she has no covenant with God. She doesn't even know who he is. Then this prophet arrives and says, I'd like a cup of water. So she goes to she says, Oh, by the way, bring me a sandwich. I'm bringing it down to our terms. Uh, would you bring me a sandwich? So he's asking something for her. But God told him that she was going to be his source. So he believed God enough to go there and now to ask of what God had said to ask. All right. And she said, as the Lord your God, so she's not, he's not my God, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Now we're talking, this is where we're talking about God's moving in this situation, and what we're going to see is God wants to meet her need. Let's go on and read her situation. I don't have any bread. All I have is a handful of flour in a bin and a little bit of oil in a jar. And here's the way I got it. Here's my vision for today. Here's what I see. I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I can go in and prepare this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil so my son and I can eat it and then we die. This was her vision. This was her hope. This is her thinking. She got up that day. Now listen carefully. She looked at what she had. What did she have in the bin? She had a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. And she knew with her understanding, all I can do with this is cook, make two sandwiches, one for my son and one for me, and when we eat those, it's over, and we're now going to starve to death. And you're coming to me? Isn't this just like a preacher? You're coming to me? And you're asking me to give you my sandwich? Now, what's her thinking? She's looking at what she has in terms of meeting her need. She's looking at this, this flour and this oil, which we'll say for our terms. Let's say she's looking at this sandwich, which is all she has. That's true. But she's looking at this as the source of meeting her need. And it's not enough. Because she knows once I've done that, it's gone. And now that's left is we're going to starve to death. And she's lulled into this hopelessness of saying it's not enough. So all I better do is hold on to what I've got, consume what I've got, because then it's all over with. I might as well enjoy today because tomorrow we're dying. That's the way we operate. We look at what our need is. We look at what we have and say, there's no way that's going to meet my need. So I better hold on to this. I better enjoy every last morsel of this because when this is gone, I don't think there's going to be any more and we have no future, no hope. It's over with. So let's just get the most out of this we can right now and hold on to it as tightly as we can. But see what the prophet told her to do. God had another answer for her. And Elijah said to her, look at the first thing he says, do not fear. Do not, first thing he says, do not fear. In this kingdom, there's no fear. Why? Because he's got everything under control. He's taking care of everything. I'm in his protection, his provision. And he sees he's so much bigger, he's so much better. I'm under his protection and provision. In this kingdom, I'm under my protection 
and my provision, and in reality, it's Satan's. Remember what happened when Adam and Eve left, walked out of that and walked over into this? What's the first thing that happened? They were afraid. Fear comes ultimately from seeing yourself separated from God. 1 John, it says, the, the perfect, perfected love, mature love, your awareness of how much he loves you drives out fear. So the first thing, because fear causes you to, fear is motivated by I've got, to, I, I've got to take care of myself and I don't have enough, so I'm afraid I better hold on. Fear makes you hold on to what you have. So the first thing he addresses is her fear. He says, do not fear. But then he tells her why. Do not fear. Go and do as you've said. In other words, go bake the bread. And, but first of all, notice this. But make a small cake for me first. In other words, take what you have, but before you consume it yourself, and meet your need, take what you have, and first of all, do it for someone else. That's the principle we're learning. Don't look at this as your last meal. Look at that sandwich as seed. What do you have? You have what you have is not going to do it. You already know that. So take what you have and give it to meet someone else's need. And as she did that, she broke the fear. You can break the fear in your life by acting the opposite of what you're afraid to do. Because fear can't stop you unless you allow it. Because you know where fear exists? Between your left ear and your right ear. It's in your mind. Fear is always based on, well, I don't have enough, and this is what's going to happen. You hear a report that, you know, the unemployment rate went up. And if, you know, your mind begins to run, and by the time, you know, 10 minutes has gone by, you're out of work, your family's on the street, You've got all this thing happening and you haven't had your second cup of coffee yet. But your minds run way ahead imagining what's going to happen. God gave you that ability to imagine, but He made, gave it to you so you could do it on the basis of His promises, not on the lies of the enemy. When you do it on the basis of His promises, it's called hope. When you do it on the basis of the lies of the enemy, it's called fear. So he has to get her to stop fearing. Then he tells her what to do because there's always something to do. Make a small cake for me first and bring it to me and then afterwards make something for your son. For thus says the Lord your God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up nor shall the jar of oil run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. She had, that was God's word. God's word she had. We have God's word. Give and it'll be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will men give back to you. We have God's promise here of what will happen if we do what he says to do. She had God's promise of what would happen if, we, if she sowed the seed. She has, she has, the, she has the, 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 the instructions of what to do, and she has the promise from God of, that she will be taken care of if she does this. But you know she still could have starved to death? And her son could have starved to death, having been told what to do and having a promise of God of his provision. Why would she have starved to death if she didn't do what the prophet said to do? You can go to agricultural school. You can have a doctorate degree in husbandry and know all the processes of a seed germinating and maturing. But as Jesus said, unless... with all that knowledge and skill and talent, all the promises of God, unless you take that seed and sow it. She had a prophet of God there. 
and said, this is what, if you do this, God will provide, take care of all your needs through this famine. With that promise, she still would have starved unless she acted on what she believed. Verse 15. And she went away, and look at this, and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. You say, how could that happen? Mark chapter 4. Sower sows the seed in the ground and goes to bed at night and it grows up and he knows not how. You don't need to understand how. You just need to do it. One last story very quickly which we've talked about before but turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Verse 13. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there from a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And when evening came, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send the people away, the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So here's the problem. There's no food. You've got a multitude of people. We're going to see later on. There were 5,000 men, regardless of the children and the wives and families. So there's maybe 20,000 people there out in the desert. And they've run out of the food that they brought. There's no food because they came out of the cities. And the disciples, thinking like the world, they're thinking. They've already figured the problem out. And they've gone out and taken an inventory of the food, of what's available, and they've looked at what they have, and they've looked at the need, and they've rationally concluded it's not enough. What are we going to do? We need to take money and go to the city and buy food. Buy food. We need to make an exchange where we. We, we, we buy food because we don't have enough. And look what Jesus says to them. I know we've talked about this before, but I want to break it down a little bit here. And Jesus said to them, you do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Isn't it just like God to tell you to do something you don't have enough to do it with? Isn't it just like God to tell you to do something? You look at it and say, well, I don't have the resources to do that. Whether it's the talent, ability, whether it's the time, the energy, whatever it is, I, 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 I can't do that. You do it. You, you go do it. That's why we always look at somebody else. Well, they can do that. They can do that. You can, and God says, no, you do it. You do it. The woman said, I, I don't have enough to meet your needs. And the prophet says, no, you do it. You meet your needs. God had ordained. You meet his needs. Because as she met his needs, God met her needs and blessed her beyond. So Jesus says, no, you go feed them. He's trying to change their thinking. He's trying to show them, no, you th- they're thinking like the world's thinking. What do I have? It's not enough. You're looking at the need, not at what you have. So he's going to teach them something. So he says, you do it. And they said to him, we've only got five loaves and two fishes. We don't have enough. They knew what they had and they were looking at the need and saying, it's not enough. That's why we've got to go get more. See, that's the thinking we have. I don't have enough, therefore I can't do anything until I have more. I can't, I, we can't give, I can't, I, until I have more, I don't have enough to do it. And Jesus isn't looking, he's looking at the, he's not looking at the harvest, he's looking at what you have. 
He's trying to train them to think like the kingdom of God. Well, we know what we have is not enough. It's just a boy's lunch. And then he says the critical thing. Bring it here to me. And that's what sowing is about. It's taking what you do have. Time, talent, abilities, mercy, finances, and bringing it to him. Take what you have and bring it. It's not enough in your hands. It's not enough in the way you're thinking. But bring it to me. See, God's the creator of all things. Psalm 50, he says, if I'm hungry, I'm not going to come ask you for food. Because I own everything. Cattle on a thousand hills. It's all mine. You understand everything you have that is even seed he gave you. So, so, so God's the creator of all things. So what he says is, whatever seed you have, bring it to me, because I can take the little you have and make it more than enough, but I can't make it more than enough in your hands. I can't make it meet the needs in your hands. You're going to have to trust me enough to take what you have that you know is not enough and let it go to me. And when you do that, I can multiply it so that it will meet others' needs and in the process meet your needs. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. Now, some of the other accounts said he sat them down in groups of 50s and 100s. So Jesus is organized. God's organized. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes and look what he did with it. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke it. So he gave thanks to the one he knows was his source. So they brought the bread to him. Look what Jesus did. And Jesus brought the bread to his father. And he thanked him for it. He thanked him for what he had. He didn't say, God... You fell short. You didn't give us enough. You put me in this situation. I got 20,000 people out there to feed. And all you gave me is this little boy's lunch. That's how we'd think. But Jesus said, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for what you put in our hands. Now I offer it to you and give you thanks. And there's another step. Because he could have just gone home at that point. But he blessed the bread and broke it, the loaves, and he gave it to the disciples. And the disciples, this is verse 19, and the disciples gave it to the multitudes. Look at this. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. And those that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. Now think about that math. A couple of loaves and a few fish. 20,000 people, more or less, were fed and were filled, satisfied. See, God will satisfy you. He'll fill you up. God's not stingy. God's not, you know, well, just piece this out here and piece this out here. He's a multiplier. He's the source of everything. God is a bountiful God. He'll do exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think, but he can only do it with what you put in his hands to work with. And there's 12 baskets left over. Now, it doesn't say this, but it's just like God. Where do you think the 12 baskets ended up? I believe they ended up at the little boy's house. And how many baskets are there? And how many disciples that didn't believe? I believe each one of them was carrying a basket home to this boy's house. Looking at that grain looking at the one in front of them, looking at the back and looking where they're going and all they can think of is we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough. Imagine the boy's mother when there's a knock at the door. She didn't realize she was sowing seed. But she gave the boy who wanted to go see Jesus. And I'm filling in some of this, I realize that. 
But it's just like God. They got enough food now for I don't know how long. From, from what? From what? From what? Where did it come from? It can't have come from just the boy's lunch. It had to have been supernaturally multiplied. Here's the point of all this, and we'll end this part. It's learning to see things as seeds, not needs. The needs God can take care of. A woman starving to death with her son has enough to go through the famine and plenty of left over. A little boy has, has just a lunch. Now he's got 12 baskets full and 20,000 people were also fed in the process. It has nothing to do with what you have, how much you have. It has to do with what you do with it. The, the need God is more than able to meet. But unless, unless we take the seed we have and we sow it into His hands, it remains alone. I pray the Spirit of God will begin to open your eyes to your life. And it's a process of learning to see what you have, not as your source, but as your seed. What you have, not as meeting your need, but as the seed you sow, because God will meet your need. But there are many of you out there struggling because you've been trying to meet your own needs. That's this kingdom. When all along you have a right in His kingdom to come to your Father, who knows what you need before you ask. And all He needs you to do is to let go of what you have into his hands so that he can multiply it back to you. He's well able to take care of you, but the part he can't do is the unless part. He can't take the seed and sow it. He can multiply and will multiply whatever you sow. You have his word on it. But unless the seed is sown and planted, it remains alone by itself and dies. Let's pray. Father, You're so gracious and patient with us. You know that it's a process of renewing our mind to learn to think very differently than we've been trained and raised to think and that we've even learned to think on our own. But by your Spirit, open our eyes of our understanding in our own particular life, in the needs that we're facing right now and help us learn to recognize what you've already given us and the potential that that seed has if sown into your hands and entrusted to you. We thank you that we have your promise and your assurance that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will not leave us cast down. You will take care of us. You know our needs even before we ask, and you are more than willing and certainly more than able to meet our needs in abundance. Help us to have the courage to not fear and to trust you enough to take that seed whatever you show it us to be and to sow it into your hands and to test you and prove you and see if you will not open the windows of heaven and pour out us in a blessing that we cannot contain. And you promised if we'll do that that you'll rebuke the devourer for our sake and we'll be called a delightsome land. Thank you for your promises and assurances in Jesus' name. Amen.